Now more with Frank Gaffney. Welcome back, and a special welcome to our featured guest each week, Bill Walton. He is the star of The Bill Walton Show, a terrific TV podcast that draws upon his experiences, among other things, as a master of the universe on Wall Street. He is also uh, a very active participant in conservative movement um, issues as a leader of the Council for National Policy, a terrific organization of which I'm very proud to be a member. Bill Walton, it's good to have you back. Welcome. Frank, thank you. I am looking forward to talking with you about uh, several, uh, I think, related topics that are perhaps um, much ado about nothing or perhaps something about uh, something quite important. And I'm hoping you're going to be able to help me parse this. Um, What I'm particularly concerned about is uh, the power and the perhaps considerable abuse thereof by uh, the CEO of a very, very large Wall Street outfit called BlackRock. His name is Larry Fink. And there have been several stories about what um, BlackRock is up to at the moment. I'd be interested in your thoughts about them if I could get them, Bill. Um, For one thing, um, BlackRock is uh, championing what has come to be called the ESG agenda, the Environment, Social Justice, and Governance Agenda, and has been using its some $8 trillion under management to induce entities in which it has invested, uh, which is a lot of companies, it turns out, here in the United States particularly, to conform to this agenda. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that as a public policy problem. Uh, A sort of classic example of it is the uh, appointment to the board of directors of ExxonMobil, of not one, not two, but three activists who really think ExxonMobil ought to get out of the uh, fossil fuels business, a top uh, environmental agenda of this ESG movement. What's the significance of um, the sort of woke capital agenda of BlackRock as you see it? Well, I think longer term, it could be very significant. ESG means environmental social governance. And the the, uh, Exxon instance you meant is a case of governance. And that essentially means let's put directors into the boardroom that support our our, uh, green views in this case. And you know, these guys not only think they shouldn't be in oil and gas, they think Exxon ought to be doing wind and solar, uh, which of which it has almost no skills. But, but putting that aside, this this is a big movement. It's become very fashionable. Uh, it's not clear whether there's uh, fire behind the smoke and uh, in, in that uh, the number of funds offering ESG investing in the United States right now is about 3%. And Larry had a big coup when he got the Thrift Savings Plan, which is the federal government largest pension defined, uh, bene- defined benefit pension operation in the, in the world, I believe, uh, to, to, to allow an ESG option for their, their holders. Now, what will happen next is that people are going to start looking at uh, – returns from this asset class. And the feeling I have is that if you focus on social and environmental and governments 
and not pay attention to your business over time, your returns will be lower. Near term, that is not that hasn't shown up yet. Um, it, it turns out that the, uh, the Fang stocks, Facebook, uh, uh, you know, I can't remember Apple, uh, Amazon, the Fang stocks are considered ESG stocks largely because they have very little environmental um, uh, footprint. And that uh, so th- and that's been driving the returns recently. They've been I think they're up about thirty percent, forty percent relative to the S and P, which is up about eighteen percent on average. So the ESG is looking good in the short term, uh, but as those stocks move down or move out of out of sync with the rest of the market, that that could be different. And the pension advisors have got a re- responsibility to. The pension holders and their primary responsibility is to achieve the highest investment returns they can. And so this, this could become a big issue if the ESG returns on those stocks turn south. And then it will become a public policy crisis where we've been misallocating capital. And, and Larry Fink is, a, is right at the heart of the matter. Yeah. Bill, one of the other things that um, we've talked about in the past is the extent to which some federal um, regulatory agencies, uh, the Fed, the SEC, for example, have begun embracing this idea that ESG is is part of their agenda. So, might we see in the future uh, changes that uh, will make it um, less the case that the uh, prime concern for businesses should be uh, return on investment? To shareholders and and uh, supplanting it with um, these various um, social justice governance environment uh, agenda priorities instead. Well, if you put yourself in the shoes of the average small businessman or small businesswoman or even middle sized business, and you've got a fifty million dollar business, and somebody comes to you and say says we want you to do environmental social. And good governments, and we want to put people on your board of your private company that are going to cause you to do non-economic things. You're going to tell them, "Hey, uh, go pound sand." Uh, it, so it's it, it's not going to interfere with your thinking about your business at that level. the The issue is is that big bigness masks a lot of bad stuff. I mean, we're talking about multi-billion-dollar corporations, and in the case of the tech companies, their profit margins. I haven't looked at it recently, but I think they're probably 15, 20, 30 percent. Um, and so they can do a lot of things that get hidden in those numbers. Uh, where it's going to become a problem is if they do too much. And then I think we will have some showdowns. And it's a, you know, I, I, this, this whole notion of, of capitalism and, and shareholders and, and returns to shareholders is, I think, central to the idea of the big idea, which is property, private property, and and how how owners of private property are able to do with what they want with their with their uh, with their assets, and you know the uh, the world right now is filled with wokeness. I mean, the Federal Reserve just instructed its employees to be careful about their language and to stop using terms like the founding fathers. Um, we've so you know. We're laughing, but at what at what point does this become operational? And it's been it's it's come on so suddenly 
and and so pervasively that I don't think we're seeing the uh, the real effect yet. But uh, you know, stay tuned because I'm going to be tracking it. Well, I hope you will, and we'll obviously be looking for your counsel on all of these matters. But speaking of private property. Um, One of the things that BlackRock is also up to, and I wonder if you have any thoughts on this, Bill Walton, is purchasing, uh, often at premium rates, immense amounts of property across this country, Um, housing units that are simply now being taken off the market uh, for purchase or or being made out of reach for purchase by uh, most mere mortals. With the possible implication that there will be uh, rental-only options available, and perhaps even uh, the wholesale removal of those uh, from the market in favor of some larger social agenda, uh, whether it's moving Section 8 housing out into the suburbs or um, uh, possible other, uh, again, ESG-ish uh, agendas. Um, do you have any thought about uh, what BlackRock is up to in this regard? Well, as much as I have problems with a lot of what BlackRock is doing with ESG and Larry Fink's agenda, I think this one people ought to just relax and and focus on other issues. There, there are 140 million housing units in the United States, and there, there are 80 million standalone family units, and about 15 million rental properties. And uh, you know, the 15 million single family rentals, institutional investors own about 300,000 of them. And so if you look at those numbers, you see that the institutional investors are not really um, moving the larger market in the United States. What, what they have done is they've gone into some selected uh, cities and bought up a bigger share. And a lot of that happened after the 2008, 2010 uh, mortgage crisis, financial meltdown, when a lot of uh, there were a lot of foreclosures, and they came in and they bought those up. You know, they're behaving pretty much like standard capitalists in this regard. Uh, they have to compete with other rental units, and so the idea that they're going to go in and and turn off the the plumbing and not not and the heat and everything and become slum landlords, they can't do that because that'll destroy the value of their properties. And I, you know, I know the guys that run these type funds, and they're they're economic creatures. They're not. Uh, they're not political creatures. So regardless of what Larry Fink thinks, when Larry starts handing out bonuses, he's going to give them bonuses based on the returns they get from the capital invested. Uh, the, the, what is moving the housing market, though, is that builders were reluctant to build homes uh, after the meltdown, uh, and that 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 shrunk supply. But the bigger issue are local zoning laws. And you know, if you want to know why there aren't houses, look at your local uh, zoning board, your local uh, uh, government officials, and they, you know, they're doing a not in my backyard strategy, and and yeah, people talk about housing, but they want to build someplace else besides uh, where they live, uh, and so I'm not a uh, housing meaning Section Eight housing for low income, uh, you know, folks, or is this uh, more generally you're talking about? Well, I'm, I think generally they're talking about affordable housing, not Section Eight housing. Uh, that that. Uh, Affordable is becoming more and more of a term of art in this environment, I guess, as people are finding it harder and harder to to find housing. But but if you if you want to get at if you want to get at lower housing costs, you've got to go after the zoning uh, laws. We had uh, you know lumber lumber prices just shot up uh, 
this year. I think they're beginning to come down, and that had some effect on housing supply. But my guess is if there's demand, um, builders will come in to fill it, but they got to get through all the regulations. And so the, the villain here, I think, is, is state, local, and federal regulations, which prevent people from building economic properties. This is a topic uh, to which we will also return, Bill. Let me ask you one last question about um, reported um, fat cat purchases of uh, real estate assets. Um, Bill Gates is reportedly now the largest owner of farmland in the United States. And uh, for those of us who are deeply skeptical about um, some of his proclivities and priorities, uh, this might be an ominous sign. Uh, Any thoughts on what he's up to and whether it is? Well, as much as I think Bill Gates is a big problem for many reasons and what he's doing with uh, you know what he's doing with medicine in Africa and other 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 of his so-called noble initiatives, I don't think in this case there's that much for us to be worried about. These uh, the, the amount of farmland he owns, I think he owns about 285,000 acres, maybe 300,000 acres, and you know that's by comparison there are 911 million of acres of farmland in the United States. So just doing the math, it's probably a third of one percent, or even less than that. And if you look at the the distribution of ownership among people that own more than a hundred thousand acres, there there are dozens and dozens of families, high net worth families, that own farmland. Farmland's a good investment. Uh, you know, Art Laffer talks about uh, um, moving to Tennessee and and believing that. Uh, Farmland in Tennessee was one of the best investments that you could make. Uh, and then more context here, there's, you know, people say, well, you've got the, the distant landlord and uh, they're going to be treating the, the property differently than, than local owners. Well, about 30 percent of the farmland in the United States is owned by uh, um, you know, institutional investors and high net worth families and, and who actually don't farm the farm. But they're basically running those for uh, for investment purposes. Uh, there was a, there was a farmer in Georgia. I, I think Gates owns some farmland in Georgia, and when he bought it, they 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 were hopeful. This guy was an environmental advocate. He was hopeful that they'd do different things. Well, Gates didn't really didn't change any of their farming practices after he owned the land. So. It seems like what likes a bit what, what for all of us mere mortals is a huge number, which is three hundred thousand acres of farmland in the context of the almost uh, you know billion acres that are that are being farmed right now. It's, it's just really not that much. Now, what he may do, he may be used as a laboratory for some sort of uh, you know. I think he wants us to to stop eating meat and maybe yep. he's going to start trying to grow chemical meat. Like I think is. Chemical meat. Yeah, I can't wait. <laughs> that sounds appetizing. Again, we'll be watching this closely with you, Bill Walton. Thank you for your time today and for the great work that you do um, with the Bill Walton Show. It's a really extraordinarily valuable product. Yeah, yeah sorry to disappoint. I'd love to make Gates and Fink more of a villain in these in these scenarios, but they're villains elsewhere. Let's, I, let's I tend to think they're villainous for sure, <laughs> and we'll, we'll keep tracking what they're doing. Thank you, Bill. God bless you, my friend. Next up, okay. we'll speak with somebody right, else Frank. right after this. Visit us at facebook.com slash securefreedom with Frank Gaffney.